0: Doing this to save me the embarrassment I've got coming to me is about the dumbest reason I can think There's of. another reason. What? I was wrong. I was. I was just... I was wrong. Come on, we know that. Lots of times we don't know what right or wrong is, but lots of times we do, and come on. This is one. I may not have had... Sinister intent at the outset. But there were plenty of opportunities for me to make it right. No one in government takes responsibility for anything anymore. We foster, we obfuscate, we rationalize. Everybody does it, that's what we say. So we come to occupy a moral safe house where everyone's to blame so no one's guilty. I'm to blame. I was wrong. How you guys doing out there? All what? Six? Six of you? Awesome. In season and out, that's when you preach. Hey, listen, uh, great to see you guys here today. We're back in our series on Romans. We are uh, walking through the book of Romans, and if you forgot why we started this, it's because Paul had never been to Rome, never set foot in the city, uh, but he desperately wanted to get there. So he probably penned in this letter to the Romans at the church at Rome, basically all of the basic instruction he would give to new churches that he planted. We didn't get the benefit of those things because he talked to them in person. But uh, this letter kind of contains all the basics and foundations of the Christian faith. So we're walking through it almost verse by verse to kind of make sure we understand what God is telling us through this book. Uh, so let me pray for us and we'll get into what God has for us today. God, thank you for your word. Thanks for uh, not letting go Paul go to Rome for a while. So we have this book that lays out all of the essential elements. Paul, a master of the Old Testament, uh, wrote 75% of the New Testament, uh, perfectly situated to be able to have your mind and heart on what was all this thing going on about salvation. I pray that we would have open minds and hearts to hear this morning, Uh, that we might be changed in attitude, changed in minds, and changed in hearts from our time with you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you probably are old enough now to have remembered, as a youngster, uh, the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor's New Clothes. Anybody remember that? About the emperor, very, very fond of appearances and clothing, and some clever fellows, really, uh, con men, uh, offered to weave him this incredible garment And he was intrigued particularly by one facet of this garment. And that is that uh, the wearer, uh, the clothing would be invisible to anyone uh, who was not uh, pure in heart and wise. So the king would wear this and he could be able to determine literally at a glance who was kind of trustworthy in his kingdom. Uh, So at great cost, he commissions this work to begin. The con men (laughs) sat at empty looms and pretended to be weaving. After a time, a little bit curious about the progress, he sends his chief minister, the emperor does, to check. He doesn't see any cloth on the looms, but he doesn't want to be thought unwise or impure. So he comes back and tells the king of this fabulous nature of this, of this cloth and this garment. Eventually, the con man asks for more money, and uh, the emperor sends his second minister, who comes back with an even more enthusiastic report about the progress. Eventually, the emperor himself goes, and he sees absolutely nothing, but he doesn't want either to be thought stupid or lacking in character of any kind, so he proclaims the cloth cloth excellent and beautiful, even gives the weavers medals. On the day of the big parade, the Khan guys dress the emperor up in his nakedness, and they skip town. And as he parades through the parade route, all the populace is joining in and praising the wonderful garb so they wouldn't be thought fools. This absurdity continued until, uh, I guess everybody thought that little kids are innocent and pure, but a little kid sort of uttered, mommy, the emperor has no clothes. And this particular declaration by that little kid caused everyone to recognize, wait a minute, here's the truth, we've been believing a lie, including the emperor. We often use this story, this fable, as, a, as an attempt to describe kind of a common fallacy that we have as mankind to remain quiet while a lie is being promoted that everyone seems to believe because, hey, could everybody possibly be wrong? Well, we'd look like idiots if we disagreed with everyone, and God is using Paul, like this little child in the story, to dismantle a lie over these first two chapters in Romans. Romans. And the lie is, the fallacy is that, is that you and I could be, by our own good works, okay with God outside of Jesus Christ. And the reason he's explained that we cannot is that you and I and everyone who has ever lived on the planet has sinned, and sin carries a death penalty, and it must be punished or God is not just or righteous. So there's no one who's ever lived, ever, that's not accountable to this God. The guy living in the tribe in the jungle knows about God from the creation that God has made, and he rejects what he knows. He's guilty before God, uh, philosophizing God away, or inventing a God that fits his ideas, his own invention. Uh, Everybody's made in the image of God, we're told. And they know instinctively right from wrong. And just in case we think we don't, when we look at someone else doing something and we see them doing something we determine is wrong, all that does is prove, ah, you know wrong, therefore you know right. And sometimes you do wrong. You are guilty. Now, last week, Paul talked to the Jews, uh, and the Jewish nation hearing about this concept that all sinners deserve to die, uh, they would would look at the rest of the world and, and they would totally agree with what Paul was saying. What they didn't seem to grasp is that the same judgment that falls on the rest of the world also falls on them for sin. They thought they were exempt just because they were Jews. They considered themselves God's uh, incredible special people. God had this unique deal with them. He gave them the law. He saved them miraculously from slavery in Egypt. Uh, he kept them uh, safe from the Egyptian army. They've given, he's given these covenants like circumcision and all that kind of stuff. The problem was that the covenant was based on keeping the law, all of it. And God knew that they couldn't. So He provided a way, even in that law, for the sin to be temporarily covered through the blood sacrifices of animals, while the people, by faith, were waiting for the coming of this Messiah who would take care of sin permanently. So, Jews that happened to be people who were waiting for this Messiah, to cover their sins, knowing they couldn't be good enough on their own, they were faithful believers. The problem most Jews, by the time Jesus shows up on the planet, thought they were good enough on their own just because they were Jews. They weren't waiting for a Messiah to take care of them, they took care of themselves. They were good on their own. And Paul showed them last week, in our, our last, a few weeks ago when, we, when he did the last session on, on Romans, that uh, these people were, as my granddaughters would say, as naked as jaybirds. They are, too, also guilty before God. So, all of that clearly said, we get back into Romans chapter 3 today. And what Paul is going to do, it's kind of a good catch-up if you missed any of the lessons we've done before. Paul is going to drive home, really, a summary of everything he's been talking about up to this point in the first two chapters. But he begins by answering some questions from his Jewish countrymen about this whole Christianity thing. And as he does, he's going to succinctly describe our condition before a holy God. And it's not pretty. It's why everyone everywhere who's ever lived needs Jesus Christ. He is the only solution. Now, I know for some of you, uh, you might have a, hey, is that really true? Is that really the case kind of reaction to what Paul's going to lay out this morning? Some of you might even have a more visceral, hey, that's not what I, that's not what I believe. That's not what I've heard. Uh, so, uh, again, we're merely summarizing what Paul has already talked about, but in the summary, it's so stark that the implications kind of jump out and hit you in the forehead. So, I want to cover just a little background before we get into it to help us kind of reset our thinking a little bit, open ourselves up to maybe what God has as thoughts this morning. Uh, I've got a book up here. If you want more on kind of a history of uh, Christian faith and whatnot, this book by John Hannah is actually a pretty good one. You can take that reference down, go to Amazon and grab it. But in our country in the 16, 1700s. The predominant view of man from the Christian perspective is that man is guilty of sin. He is dead before God. His intellect is darkened. His emotions are flawed. He doesn't even really have free will. He's hostile to God, doesn't seek after God. Uh, he's engaged in evil because he's born a offspring of the devil. And he carries out the will of that father, his father, the devil, as he goes through life. Not a spark of goodness is to be found in him. And in that particular condition, God's only requirement, really, is to judge him because of sin. But God could choose to save a person. That was God's sovereign pleasure. And if a person got saved, it was, it was because God made it happen. God, God drew that person to come to believe in Jesus Christ but the salvation of man was totally at the discretion and mercy of Almighty God. That was basically the Puritan view of man. And you're going to see, quite honestly, as Paul lays out our condition before a holy God this morning, that that pretty much seems to suggest that's where we are in scriptures too. But in the 1800s, here's what the view of man changed to it, mutated. Man's not really spiritually dead. He's just kind of weak, kind of sickly, kind of anemic. He's not really blind to God, he's just a little nearsighted. He's, he's not deaf to God in the gospel, just, just a little hard of hearing. And this particular view of man and salvation was not that it was a sovereign act of God from beginning to end, it was sort of a cooperative act of God. God and man working together. Man could choose, he had free will, he could choose to accept Jesus, or he could choose not to. Salvation, instead of being an act of God, was uh, something where God provides maybe a pool, And man, looking at the pool, could decide to jump in the pool. And if he does, then God could save him. And if he doesn't, God wouldn't. And then by the 20th century, we began to see trends in churches and seminaries, where man maybe doesn't even need to be saved at all. I mean, man is really too good, really, to condemn, right? And God, well, he's too loving to condemn anybody. And hell, well, it didn't really exist, just a kind of a figment of imagination. Man wasn't really depraved. In fact, we're, we're getting better and better. We're evolving. We're improving. Salvation wasn't something that really spiritually happened to you deep inside. It was kind of a corporate social gospel. We just need to educate people. We need, we need to feed people. We need to give them inoculations. We need to give them health. We need to give them housing. We need to bring about some great social reform. And so, for many liberal churches, that was the kingdom of God, just making life here on earth just a little better. I throw this all out to you because I'm persuaded that your view of the condition of mankind before God will determine your perspective on salvation. If your view of man is that man is dead and unable to respond in his alienation to God, you're going to have a system of salvation that is basically the sovereign act of the Almighty pulling people in. If you think the man is just weak, but he's got a really kind of a spark of goodness in him, then you'll have salvation be this cooperative act where man and God kind of get together and strike a deal. If you believe that man in his essence is essentially good, you're going to have a God that just stands back and watch man run the table. So with that backdrop, let's look at what God thinks through the words he inspired the Apostle Paul to pen. And then you decide whether you want to line up with God or strike your own route. What Paul starts out with are some questions that his Jewish counterparts have been Firing off after hearing about this gospel that makes them just as guilty as every non-Jew out there, and they're going to be judged by God, not get an automatic pass like they thought to heaven, right? No, Paul says God's going to actually judge you guys a little more harshly. Why? Because you had a lot more specific revelation from God than the regular pagan. You had a personal relationship with God. You'd seen God work. You had His law right in front of you. The problem is you just didn't do the law and what the covenant required. So the first question the Jews might ask, and Paul feeds it back to us, well then what advantage is it to be a Jew? What's the value of this circumcision thing that God gave had us do? Paul, are you saying that, that we Jews are in the same boat as non-Jews, and that we're just as guilty? Then what's the advantage? Why would, why would we even be Jews? Paul says, man, I'm glad you asked. Verse two, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Jews had God's word straight from God himself at Mount Sinai, and then through all of the prophets through the history of the country. Not the annoying oracle in The Matrix Reloaded, okay? That's something much better than that is what God provides. And this oracle, this word of God, gives them advantages over the Gentiles who know some general things about God just by looking at creation. But the Jew, man, if he can read, or if he can't, if he has ears and someone else can read it to him, he can know very specific things about God in what God authored. God declares in that stuff, here I am. Here's who I am. Here's what I am. Here's what I'm like. Here's where you came from. Here's what happened to you. Here's your situation now. Here are my standards. Here is a way out. And the law explicitly itself states, we are gonna mess up. But that a restored relationship with God would come about through sacrifice, the shedding of blood. And to highlight that, as part of the law, God establishes this entire sacrificial system. Just a picture of what this promised Messiah would do permanently and eventually. Oh yeah, Paul says. Being a Jew, <laughs> you've got incredible advantages. You don't have to just be a philosopher and come up with a guess. You can just read the word and know. So he asked, they asked the next question. Well, what if some are unfaithful, the Jews would say? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God let's take that apart. Here's the question. Well, Paul, so what? So what if a bunch of us Jews didn't believe everything that God revealed in his law, in his word? What if we didn't recognize our sin? What if we we didn't all put our faith in this sacrifice that the Messiah would eventually make? What if we did trust in ourselves? What if we believed that our good works would get us to heaven? So what if we believed we could be good enough to make it? Sure, sure, we might be a little unfaithful, but if God's going to judge us, then God's even more unfaithful. He's even a bigger sinner than we are, because he's made certain promises to us Jews that he's going to be breaking. What what about that, huh? See, here's the thought. If we're going to go to hell because we didn't keep all the law perfectly, then that means God is even worse than we are in the sin category. He's lied to us. Man, God that lies, that's really bad. And we're a special people. Didn't God make promises to us as a nation? Didn't he promise there'd be a kingdom that we'd be in it with a Messiah? Didn't God promise that we were the chosen people? Wasn't that an unconditional promise? Tell you how far they'd gotten. God named Justin Martyr, I think I got him pictured up here. Maybe. Uh, He's a pagan who became a Christian in the second century. And he actually sought to defend Christianity before the Roman emperor Antoninus. He actually looked at the Jews in his day and here's what his perspective was on their perspective. Here's what he said the Jews, suppose that to them, universally, who are of the seed of Abraham, Jews, no matter how sinful, no matter how disobedient to God they might be, the eternal kingdom would be given to them. So that was the thought of Jews in the day. Sin may, you know, we may have some hard times because of sin. God may, may, may punish us a little bit. But uh, because we're Jews, all Jews are going to go get eternal life because our relationship with God because we're Jews, because we have the law. We're just special. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to believe anything else. We're going to get there just because of Jews. And Paul tells them, man, you're, you're missing the boat. You are not saved just by being Jews. And what they heard back was, well, if that's true, then you may get out to be even more of a sinner than we are. And, God's, and Paul says, by no means, in verse 4, let God be true, though everyone, have, everyone was a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again, let's take that verse apart. What's going on here? It's the first time Paul's used this little idiom, by no means. It means there's no way in the world this could ever happen, that God would be a liar. He's never going to be untrue to his word. He's never going to be unfaithful to his promises. Um, So, is God going to be unfaithful to what he said because some Jews are going to perish? No way, Jose. Paul says. And to prove his point, Paul brings in one of the most revered figures in Jewish history, King David, to show that God is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly okay, should he condemn a Jew. Paul's going to quote Psalm 51 to make his point. So, here's the backdrop to Psalm 51. David sees Bathsheba from his rooftop bathing. He summons her to the castle. He commits adultery with her, gets her pregnant, and then to cover it up, because the cover-ups where all the bad stuff really happens, right? He sets up her husband Uriah to be killed in battle. I think he broke virtually all of the Ten Commandments (laughs) right there. Well, he thinks he's gotten away with it until the prophet Nathan shows up at his doorstep. And prophet Nathan has a little interesting story. A story about a guy who didn't have much, but he had a little lamb. And that lamb was all he had, only lamb he had. And he loved that lamb. The lamb was like a a house bed. It slept in the house with him. But there was a rich guy nearby who had vast herds available at his fingertips. And he's going to have a dinner party. And he decides, I don't want to get one of my lambs. I want to get that lamb. So he goes and he takes the one lamb away from the guy. And he kills it. And he serves it at his dinner party. And David's response when he hears this story, absolute outrage. He he says, that man should die. And Nathan says, interesting, you would say that. You are the man. And your own lips condemn you. David, after that, repents and seeks the forgiveness of God, but he writes this in Psalm 51. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then that verse we saw just before in Romans. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, God, if you judge me and condemn me now, a Jew, I just want you to know I totally deserve it. I would have nothing to say in opposition to you if you made that call. You're perfectly right and perfectly just in doing so. So Paul then quotes David, pretty good primary source to use on his Jewish counterparts. Let no one accuse you, God, of being a bad guy or doing anything wrong. You are righteous in exercising your judgment against my sin, a Jew. Paul's point, if David, a man after God's own heart, Acknowledge that he has not a leg to stand on before God's judgment, then there is no Jew that gets an automatic pass. Well, that really leads to another argument from his fellow countrymen. Well, Paul, if you're saying that God is seen as righteous and good by dispensing justice even to Jews, is that what you're saying? Yeah, Paul would say, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Here's what they're going to shoot back. Well, if our unrighteousness, our sin, is being used by God to show just how righteous he is and why are we being punished? Why is he inflicting wrath on us? We're just helping him out. Basically, that's the Jewish response. Hey, that's not fair. God, how, Paul, how can God judge me, a Jew, if my sin and his justice against it makes him look wonderful? He should be rewarding us for helping make him look so cool. A little side note. This argument from the Jews really fascinated me as I kind of looked at it. Mostly because I have never in my life talked to anybody who's lost and heard them use that argument. That, you know, hey, why would God send me to hell? I'm making him look good. Nobody's ever used that and talks with me. My guess is no one's ever used it with you. And I thought, well, why, why in the world does that happen? Why does nobody use that anymore? And I think, I think it goes back to how we present the gospel. Sometimes the gospel we present to people is just trust in Jesus. Just accept Jesus. He'll uh, make you happy He'll make you joyous. Uh, your life will go better. Things will go better. And you, you'll also get to go to heaven at the end. It sounds so good, right? But then you, you hear that from the lost person's perspective. And a lot of what you hear is, well, you know what? Thanks for the offer. But you know what? I'm doing pretty good right now. I'm feeling pretty good about life. I've, I've, got, a, I've got a pool. I've got a Lexus. I've got a nice house. Got a guy. Got a gal. Life's really good. I don't need Jesus. Pretty happy as I am. And that's because we really haven't shared the full weight of the gospel. Not like it's laid out here in Romans. See, the gospel contains the absolutely hard facts that you as a human being are dead guilty before God. And he is free, and he is going to be just if he does anything to you in terms of judgment. And by the way, that judgment is coming as sure as the sun comes up in the morning. But what he has done is provide his own son to die for your sins and pay the penalty. Your only option to be spared judgment is to flee to Christ, know his forgiveness, find life in him as your Savior and Lord. Now, that's a cold hard fact that there's judgment coming, right? But it highlights God's righteousness and holiness, and it prompts the question, well, if we're making God look good, then we should get a pass because we're doing good, even if we're sinning. How bad can we really be if we're making God look so good? And Paul throws in this little phrase, I'm, I'm speaking in a human way here. Paul's playing the devil's advocate, shooting back to us in this book things that he's heard from his Jewish counterparts. And it's so offensive to him that he has to kind of break character and say, I just want you to know, this isn't my thoughts. I'm hearing this from my Jewish, but this is what a goofy human would say. So, he answers that charge. He says, by no means, verse 6. For if God did that, how could he judge the whole world? He's basically saying, okay, you guys have it wrong again. What you Jews are missing is that if God can't judge the Jew for his sins, he couldn't judge anybody else in the world either for theirs. He'd be unfair. And if you want to go there, you realize you are undermining one of the great hopes you have as Jews. See, Jews longed for, and they counted on the day when the Romans, when the Greeks, when the Persians, when the Babylonians, when the Assyrians… When the Philistines, whoever had been mean to them all through their history, got what they deserved. That someday God would trample those people out in his wrath. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 32 that God said of the Gentile, the non-Jew, their foot will slip in due time. Their sin is stored in my treasury. I've not forgotten it. It's going to be dealt with, trust me. Quite often in the Nazi death camps on different trees where Jews were taken out and executed, they would find inscribed in the bark the Hebrew word for avenge. For the Jew, that was his hope, that someday in the Messiah, God would judge all men other than the Jew. They held on to God's verse that said, he that blesses you, Israel, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. So Paul is telling his Jewish detractors that if they're arguing, if what they're arguing is true, God would not have the right to judge anyone else, including all the people through time, that the Jews had hoped God would smash so, is it wrong for God to bring glory to himself by judging unbelieving Jews? Not at all. Because if he gives Jews a pass, he's got to give the unbelieving world a pass, and the Jews are going to hate that. So, he says, your argument's not holding water. And in verse 7, he goes further. Paul actually pretends to be a Gentile. He's actually, he's actually using an argument that the Gentiles would use, and it sounds a whole lot like what the Jews were saying. Here's what he says. I'm a Gentile. If through my lie, my sin, God's truth abounds his glory why am I still being considered a, a, a sinner? Why am I still being condemned? I shouldn't be condemned either, just like the Jews don't want to be condemned. So Paul plays the part of this Gentile. If through my lie, my idolatry, my sin, God's holy character is highlighted so well, then we Gentiles shouldn't be condemned either. We're all part of the process. Jews and Gentiles are making God look fantastic. In other words, Paul says the Gentile would use the same arguments you guys are using as Jews. And you Jews know that that's not right because you long for the day when the Gentile gets what's coming to him. Sin is sin. And God's character demands it all be dealt with. Jewish sin, Gentile sin. And then Paul lays out her, their final argument against Christianity, their last ditch effort to throw water on Christianity. And why not do evil? that good may come. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What's, what's going on there? here's what the Jews would say. Well, you Christians believe that God's going to forgive your sins based on Christ coming, living, dying, being buried, raising again. If that's the case, that's just going to lead you to sin all the more. You know, because gosh, you believe God's going to forgive all your sins. So Christianity is nothing more than just an excuse for you to sin all over the place and then whoop it up because God's so amazing that he just forgives it all. And Paul says, whoa, 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 not so fast. First, that's not Christianity at all. You are, in fact, slandering Christianity. Why don't you just do this? Why don't you just peer at Christians around you? Let's just take a look and see what's going on. You see changed lives. You see lives where sin is decreasing, where people look more and more like Christ. So, you're using the argument of Christianity, encouraging people to sin, it flies in the face not only of sanity, but in fact, what's really going on on the ground. You just don't see evidence of that. And if you're going to make that argument, you are slanderers, and you know slandering is a lie, and boom, you're going to be judged for that too. So, good luck to you. Now then, Paul steps back, having answered all the questions, and summarizes all of his arguments. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Everybody's under sin. This under sin is a new term. Yeah, some are worse than others. Some are better than others. But all are under the gavel guilty. All are under sin. God could rightly judge everyone. He does not have to save anyone. He's not obligated to do anything nice for humanity. And just in case people think Paul is making this up, he does something very interesting. He brings in God as a final witness. Everything in the next 10 verses are Old Testament quotations that God inspired the authors of the Old Testament to write. And just for the record, if the prosecution brings in God as a witness against you, you should know you're in trouble. What is our condition under sin? The testimony begins. In verse 10, We see the condition of all mankind before God. These next three verses are all quotes from Psalm 14. As it is written in Psalm 14, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Let me put that in the Living Bible translation. Not one human being anywhere on planet earth has ever lived who should ever have any confidence in himself in standing before God. Not one. Not only that, no one even understands the mess they're in. His mind, his thinking is distorted. As a result, he'll land on all manner of philosophies, agnosticism, polytheism, deism, humanism, atheism, or other some weird philosophy. He's not going to think his way through to a God that would save him By sacrifice that God Himself provides, he'll seek all kinds of stuff: fame, money, sex, power, religion, learning, philosophy, but not forgiveness from a holy God. Jesus put it like this: "No man comes to me, not one, unless the Father has, uh, who has sent me, draws him." So man is under sin; he can only choose to be what he is. Like a fish can't fly through the air like a bird, he must swim in the aquarium. So mankind, under sin, swims in the mess, the confines of his own darkness and sinfulness. That is the extent of sin. That's what it means to be under sin. The body, the mind, the soul, the will, all touched by, governed by, controlled by sin. And that under sin nature gets expressed. It says this, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Quotes from Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, Psalm 140, and Isaiah 15. Are you you picking up what God thinks about our condition before him, lacking Christ? So you tell me, is God's position that man is basically good? that all we have to do is just fan that little spark of goodness? No. So, we can see what we're going to expect. Verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. What does that mean? Pretty simple, really. When the speed limit on the highway sign says 65, is that law binding on anyone who's on the road? Or is it just a Suggestion? Is it just a recommendation? Does it just apply to certain people? Are bikers, for example, exempt? Are you exempt? No, it's binding on anyone who's on the road. The law speaks to anyone who's on that road. If you get pulled over because you're not wearing a seatbelt, the cop will say, I stopped you because you're not wearing a seatbelt. You may say, Well, officer, I'm so sorry, I just forgot, I always wear it. He's not going to say, Well, that's okay because it was just a recommendation he's going to say, I'd like to see your driver's license and registration. Why? Because whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under it. The law's not bluffing. It's not making impotent little statements. If you are caught not wearing a seatbelt or going 80 in a 65-mile-an-hour zone, the law will speak to you (laughs) guilty, and it will mete out punishment. So the law says, when it says don't slander, it means it. When it says don't lie, it means it. When it says don't lust, it means it. When it says don't envy, it means it. When it says don't covet, it means it. And God is deadly serious about it. And from God's perspective, looking at our lives, what chance do we have in mounting any kind of a winning defense? Absolute zero. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared innocent, declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We will not have a defense. Mum's the word for us before God. How much of the world's going to be accountable? All of it. Every single individual. No one's exempt because we're all under law. How many human beings are going to be justified, declared innocent or righteous because of their good deeds? No, because we've all violated the law. Not our good deeds, really, that's at issue. It's the violation of the law that gets us. Paul says, if you are human, you are in a heap of trouble. You have sinned and you are guilty. And this is what it means in Habakkuk 2. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. We'll have nothing to say. Because the law does not save us. The law is only there to show us that we've not always kept it. We have sinned. You and I are in quicksand and we are not going to escape. The more we struggle, the faster we fall. If someone hands you the branch that is the law, it will break because the law is not intended to rescue you. It's intended just to simply call out your violations of it. In fact, you and I, based on what Paul is saying in chapters 1, 2, and now part of 3, is that every human being lacking Christ is in a situation of hopelessness and helplessness before God. So God knows. Paul knows. No one gets saved by Christ until they first discover a truth, which is that they need saving. So that's why he has focused these first three chapters on trying to make sure everybody knows just where they stand, lacking Christ before God. God wants us to know. He makes sure we want to tell everybody, if we're Christians, that judgment is coming and that our situation appears hopeless. And it's in that context with everything looking as grim as it could possibly look, with no way out that we can possibly see, that we are coming upon some of the most fantastic and amazing passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Next week, God begins to unveil this miraculous rescue plan that he came up with to save us. If you've been kind of bummed out by these first two or three chapters, just hold on to your hat because the bad news of our condition before him gets trumped by the fantastic news of the gospel. So let me just close this way. If you're here today and you've heard for the very first time the incredibly horrific situation you are in before a holy God, know that God has prepared something for you. Salvation. A free gift. It means you've earned none of it. It's been offered to you as a gift. Jesus Christ, by his death, by his life, by his burial, by his resurrection, came and paid the price for all sins for those who would believe in him. And he offers life, not death. A life that you, as you follow him, was going to be more than you ever would expect. And a life that will not end in a grave here or in hell, but in life everlasting with Father in heaven. And realize this, if you've come to that, even as a Christian here this morning, realize this, this is not anything you discovered. You didn't discover anything. God loved you. He wooed you. He opened your eyes to the truth. He called you by name and won you over by his grace and his love and his mercy. Not because he had to. Didn't owe you a thing. Didn't owe me a thing. Just because he chose to do so out of love for these rascally rascals that we are as humans. Let's pray. As we hear these passages, Lord, if it's a, it really is amazing that you would, why would you want us to be with you? Why would you make that sacrifice on our behalf, knowing that there's no good in us, and yet you see what could be if we are in Christ? You see the perfection of Christ in us as we grow know you. We're never going to get perfection here, but you know you see where we're going to be. You see the end. And you've declared it was worth it. It was worth it for those of us sitting in this room for Christ to die. It was worth it. We have no idea why. Because you did it for no reason. There was no reason you had to do this. No reason you needed to do it. You chose to do it. We praise you this morning. As we take communion, Lord, would we look at that blood represented by the juice, the body represented by the little piece of bread, and remember what it cost, and that we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. You chose us. You loved us. May we be filled with joy as we remember what it is you've done for us for no good reason other than your love. In Christ's name, amen.